Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to those in the Gastein Valley and to those joining the session online. Welcome to this session organized by the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control uh, on controlling a pandemic by controlling people. And I can honestly say, colleagues, I, this is one of the sessions I've really been particularly looking forward to um, in, in this week despite the fact that I'm involved in it, but because of the content, which I think is really interesting. This is the third in a series of sessions that the ECDC have been organizing, I think really exploring a range of issues uh, related to the mandate of the center. And this one explores a really important issue. This whole question that we all were faced with during the pandemic about not just the clinical effectiveness of different measures, about, let's say, the economic impact. And of course, there were lots of discussions about these different issues, but whether or not they were right or wrong, what were the ethical dimensions? What were the challenges that we were facing? And did we even have a shared language for how we would discuss those challenges, how we would balance those challenges? And were we getting the right kind of inputs through the advisory structures, through our different processes, in order to be able to consider, to reflect on, and to assess those different challenges and how they could be balanced? I'm sure by now you are familiar with the approach to these sessions. This is the, uh, this is the early afternoon in sunny Gastein Valley. There may have been strudel which means you might be thinking that you can just sit there, but you can't because we will be looking for your active uh, participation. We have uh, an excellent lineup of speakers. We'll be having introductions from both the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control, um, the director, Andrea Amon, but also uh, from Dr. Andreas Ries from the World Health Organization. We'll be having national perspectives and stakeholder perspectives in the, in the session, and I'll introduce those speakers as we proceed. But we also want your input because these questions of ethics and values and the tensions and questions that we needed to resolve are questions that face all of us. So the word cloud, we'd like, we're going to um, have a word cloud and put up a, uh, a, ask you for your input around that. You can see that around what do you think was the, the most lacking question in terms of what was, what was the aspect, what was the ethical value that was most missed out, if you like, that we most failed to consider in, um, in our questions around assessing the ethical dimension of our uh, controlling the pandemic. And of course, you can be asking questions. Brian is going to be um, making sure that we, uh, in the newsroom, making sure that we take account of your questions and we will bring those in later in the session. So please don't just listen, but also be involved and engaged in the session as we go through. And uh, just for the record, uh, my, my name is Nick Fahey. I'm uh, the director of the Health and Wellbeing Research Group at RAND Europe. We're an independent research institute uh, supporting policymakers across Europe. And I'm particularly grateful for the, the trust and uh, the honor of uh, being able to moderate this uh, third session in this series from the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control. So having introduced 
the session a little bit, it's now my pleasure to introduce our first speaker um, and to invite uh, Dr. Andrea Amon to join us remotely from Stockholm. I'm very glad that you're able to be joining us remotely. It would have been even nicer to have had you in the Gastein Valley, but we're very grateful for your input. And without further ado, Andrea, I will hand over to you. Um, um, dear ladies, ladies and gentlemen, dear colleagues, dear co-panelists, uh, as uh, Nick said, I would have loved to join you live in the in the. But uh, a public health measure um, has impacted me. Um, uh, that is, uh, since I had tested positive, I decided to stay home. Um, so um, the, the pandemic in the past two and a half years has forced us to find new solutions, new ways of working. And it has forced us to take measures that none of us who is working in public health today ever has applied. We thought it to be measures of the past. Um, and um, uh, when we applied those in, in spring 2020, when we had nothing else, it was met, they were met by, by agreement and approval uh, in the population and with a high level of compliance. And they worked. So when the subsequent waves came, we applied them again. And it worked less and less. Because as the pandemic evolved, um, uh, the, the understanding of the impact of these measures grew. And uh, also the understanding of the importance of ethical considerations into account. And while uh, I was convinced as a public health practitioner that, um, uh, of course, we're doing this for the protection of people, for their good, uh, to, to um, uh, save them from, from, from COVID, when they said, yeah, 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 of course, uh, you should uh, protect people from COVID, but not at, my, at the expense of my freedom, I said, yeah, but... And that got me thinking, um, uh, because... I thought there was a point, and I also thought um, that um, uh, these um, uh, uh, points about taking measures that have um, uh, considered the proportionality um, uh, when, on the one hand, uh, restricting individuals' freedom and the, the public uh, uh, health, um, they, were, they had a point, and I thought, well, uh, there is something that we have never considered in that, in that explicitly. Mm. So we, um, uh, I thought, well, somehow um, we do better in the future. And for me, this is, this session here is part of a learning curve and a learning process. Um, we try to bring different uh, perspectives here. We tried to um, uh, uh, bring people here from, from different disciplines, and I hope we can have a good dialogue. 
Uh, and this dialogue also has to enter, uh, um, in my view, a, a very firm place in the future pandemic preparedness plans. When we now set about um, making improvements, because um, the, the, if, if you don't foresee them in the plans, they will not take place. And um, I think we can pick up part of the session that we had last year on the community engagement, because that is necessary. This um, uh, balance that we're talking about between the individual freedom and the protection of the population health is not a right or wrong. It's a balance, and it has to be a consensus where two extremes we move and this consensus can only be done with a di in a dialogue if, uh, 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 with all parts of society and for this we need the trust to have a constructive dialogue and I would also like to see today as an outcome to see what should be the content of this of this dialogue now I'm really grateful for all the speakers um, uh, that uh, they share today their perspective and their experience. For me, it's a starting point for the discussion, and we will continue to highlight this important uh, topic and create a forum for discussion. Um, we, in our big scientific conference in November in Skyde, we have dedicated the keynote um, speech uh, also to the, the ethics in public health. So we will continue with the topic and raising it. And I will personally uh, do what I can to advocate for a firm place of such considerations in the future pandemic preparedness plans. Nick, over to you. Thank, thank you. you very much. Um, thank you for that introduction. Thank you also for it being perfectly on time. Uh, as a moderator, I especially appreciate. Um, you, I think, Andrea, you set that scene very clearly about the challenge, the, the thought processes that you faced in leading the ECDC, the challenges that it brought home to you during the pandemic, and this question of how do we strike these balances. And I think when we come to our uh, our inputs from the different panelists, we'll hear more about the, what kinds of balances which were being struck <coughs> and how. But what I would like to do now uh, is to invite our keynote speaker, Dr. Andreas Reis, uh, who is co-lead of the Global Health Ethics Team um, from the World Health Organization. Um, Andreas, again, you're uh, joining us remotely, but we're uh, no less grateful to you for uh, joining us, um, even if there may have been a regrettable absence of strudel in your participation so far. Um, I, I think we've, we've seen the challenge which has been uh, set out and articulated so clearly by Andrea. I'd be very grateful for your perspective on how you see this from your seat from within the World Health Organization. Over to you. Good afternoon, everyone. And uh, first, I would like to thank the organizers and congratulate them from UCDC for organizing such a timely session and for inviting uh, WHO and me to this meeting. And yeah, unfortunately, I'm missing out on the beautiful podcast sign in the Strudel, but at least I can join you uh, virtually today. So what we have seen in these uh, past almost uh, three years is an unprecedented pandemic 
But it is not the first one and certainly will not be the last. Um, these kind of epidemics and pandemics, such as SARS, Ebola, pandemic influenza, Zika, COVID-19, and now monkeypox already, always raise many difficult ethical issues. And WHO has been working on them for uh, almost uh, two decades now, uh, since the times of uh, SARS. This is also why already in February 2020, uh, 2020 WHO established an international expert group on the ethics and uh, COVID. Some of the key ethical questions that tend to arise during all these epidemics are who should get access to health services, treatments and vaccines? When, if ever, is it justified to limit basic individual rights and freedoms in order to protect public health? And then what are the rights, but also the ethical obligations of healthcare workers to risk their life and even sacrifice their life? Finally, should we prioritize national needs or international solidarity, for example, regarding vaccine supply? That also um, has been a key issue. And on this last point, almost uh, a year ago exactly, on the 21st September 22, um, sorry, uh, 21, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, pointed out that the majority of the wealthier world was already vaccinated against COVID-19, while over 90% of Africans were still waiting for their first dose. And then he said, this is a moral indictment of the state of our world. It is an obscenity. We passed the science test, but we are getting an F, so the worst mark, in ethics. So, uh, best grades for the uh, technical solutions, the very rapid uh, development of vaccines, unprecedented, but a really bad grade in ethics from our UN Secretary General. And I think there are many other examples of where technical issues were in fact quite rapidly resolved, but the ethical challenges were very difficult to overcome. One of the reasons is because in managing epidemics and pandemics, there are always multiple goals. For example, preserving health and minimizing disease and death, maintaining the liberty of citizens, or protecting the economy. Sometimes these goals can conflict with each other, and there are no easy solutions on how to best balance these goals. For example, policymakers need to decide whether they should limit individual freedoms and introduce isolation, quarantine, or mask regulations in order to limit the spread and ultimately reduce disease and death. Or they need to decide who should have priority in getting the scarce resources, such as vaccines or hospital beds, or respirators in intensive care units. And we all vividly remember the scenes in, in some uh, countries, also in Europe, um, where, um, for example, respirators in intensive care units were getting really short. And uh, you know, dramatic decisions had to be taken. 
Many of these ethically complex dilemmas and trade-offs are extremely difficult to take on the spot. This is why I strongly believe that it is key to use the interpandemic times, if they even exist, for discussing these ethically complex issues ahead of the next epidemic. Some also call this ethics preparedness, which should indeed be an integral part of pandemic preparedness efforts, just as building laboratory capacity and disease surveillance structures. I strongly believe that we need to strengthen what I would call the ethics infrastructure. Most European countries by now have national ethics committees that can provide ethical advice to their governments, parliaments, and policymakers. And in many countries, actually, these national ethics committees have, in fact, been working around the clock during the past two and a half years. But in some countries, the national ethics committees have either been weak or not adequately involved in the decision-making. What is lacking in many cases is, in my view, a better integration of the technical knowledge with the ethics expertise. I would argue that governmental and intergovernmental advisory bodies on epidemics should not only include technical experts, but should systematically also include social scientists, civil society, lawyers, and ethicists. Trust is the new buzzword in addressing pandemics. And it is true that the trust of a population in measures taken by the government is a necessary requirement for people to comply with these measures. Dr. Amon already mentioned this. But only when policymakers demonstrate that the values and preferences of the society have been adequately incorporated in the decision-making process, and ethically sound decisions are being made, then this trust can be earned and maintained. This is why citizen engagement and community engagement, and perhaps a pan-European dialogue about our common values is so important in shaping a pandemic response that is acceptable by the citizens. I would hope that by strengthening the ethics preparedness, we will contribute to health systems that are better prepared for future pandemics to come. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Andreas. Um, and I, I know I, uh, with, um, not surprised, but uh, recognition that the WHO was so quick to establish that ethics infrastructure that you described. Um, but, and this challenge of that ethical infrastructure, that ethics infrastructure, 
You know, what is the source of advice? How do we build in these different perspectives? I think that's exactly the challenge which we will turn to now with the representatives of, uh, from different national experiences and different stakeholder experiences. And so I will thank uh, both of you, Andrea and Andreas. Please stay with us um, for, uh, the, as we will want to bring you back in later in the session. But for now, I'd like to invite to uh, come up to the stage uh, our speakers who are here in, in uh, Gastein. So uh, Dr. Wiesel from Sweden, um, Dr. Portugal, from Portugal, um, and also Kaiser Immonen from the European Patient Forum. Uh, and we'll introduce you more fully as we go through each of the, uh, each of the uh, parts of your contributions. Um, and I think so, Andreas described a number of parts of the challenge there. So uh, not just the, the infrastructure and getting the right kind of input, but also how to have these kinds of conversations with citizens and to, to how to engage around these questions of how to balance the technical and the social and the ethical and bring all these things together. Um, Dr. Wiesel, if I may start with you, uh, you're Director General of the Public Health Agency of Sweden. Sweden was, of course, a country that took a, a, perhaps a distinctive approach. You, balance, you struck these balances in a very considered way, but perhaps in a way that was, well, the rest of the world was watching the approach that you took, if I, if I can put it that way. Um, and so what I'd like to do is invite you to speak a bit about your perspective, um, about how you reconcile these, uh, these different challenges. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for inviting me. and. Um, letting me explain some of the considerations that we have taken in Sweden. As you were saying, we have in Sweden been portrayed as an outlayer in the management of the pandemic. For example, as being regarded as lax due to the fact that we were rather applying authority recommendations and to a less degree binding uh, legal regulations uh, to limit the movements of individuals. With that in mind, I just want to be clear that, like in most countries, uh, extensive measures were put in place, also in Sweden, with the intention to suppress transmission of COVID-19. Uh, and that was done by preventing avoid avoidable physical interactions and uh, to increase physical distance in general, and only allowing a limited number of uh, uh, gatherings at um, sorry, uh, allowing a limited number of individuals at, at public gatherings. We offered generous testing when you had symptoms, and we applied um, um, tracing, and we did quarantine, like, like in most other countries. So I don't think we were such a much of an outlier that might have been uh, the narrative in many countries. Um, but we did also do a lot of uh, efforts to try to enable people to follow the various authority recommendations that were put in place, like omitting the qualifying days when you were having symptoms or being ill, and also omitting the uh, obligatory uh, certificate that you normally need when you're home for more than a week. Uh, just wanted to say that to start up with. Um, the Swedish strategy 
was and is still based on previous work in public health in Sweden. And that includes also that um, the basis is um, on the self-determination theory, uh, which is that the individual needs to be determined why are those measures being applied. And that is in order to obtain a, uh, a uh, change in behaviour that is also <coughs> sustainable. And the existing plans for the pandemic preparedness and um, all, all that we did was in agreement with the legal framework in Sweden. And in Sweden, uh, we have a Communicable Disease Act that constitutes the main legal framework for the handling of the pandemic. And it includes specific requirements of proportionality, as well as specific considerations regarding children. And that is since the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child is incorporated in the Swedish legislations. And the framework specifically states that measures shall be on a solid scientific ground and shall not be more extensive than what can be justified with regard to the danger of the disease that the disease poses on health. And that measures shall be taken with the respect of equal value of all in society and with the integrity of the individual. And when measures concern children, particular considerations must be taken regarding the best interest of the child. Uh, and measures that an individual refrain to can only be pursued if no other means are available. And, and that is the legal framework. And acknowledging this, these aspects, that entails considering public health aspects at large, and in particular the health of children and the most vulnerable groups in society. With this as a background, emphasis in Sweden was put on measures that were identified as uh, apparent risk, to, to stop the apparent risk where the apparent transmission was high, like indoor settings, but not outdoor settings in general. And additional measures were put in plain place aimed to those that were the most vulnerable, like the elderly, for instance. And also all the measures were decided after taking into consideration the potential negative impact on public health in general. And in order to inform the decisions prior to the decisions, the legal framework states that we need to have a process that um, we shared the decisions with the stakeholders that will be affected. So we had to involve the target groups. Um, and doing that, of course, meant extensive referrals of authority recommendations and precepts before they were taken, uh, the decisions were taken and put in place. And this was always done with the regional uh, communicable disease officers, but also with the representatives for municipalities, regions, religious communities, re representatives of commerce, the transport sector, sport movement, representatives of civil society and others. And for children, we have a, a child ombudsman that was, were, was involved in the measures that were put in place. And we had a special routine to, to in, in particular, take uh, regard to the children. And the, the pandemic has really highlighted several aspects and just want to show you some, a few slides. Okay, that's the last slide. So this just shows a comparison between the Nordic countries when it comes to how much uh, the movement of um, the individuals were affected by the authority recommendations. So the bold line is the movement of the Swedish population, and on the y-axis it is the relative percentage of movement compared, compared to the year 2019. 
and the other coloured lines are the other Nordic countries. And you can see that compared to the other Nordic countries, this, the outcome of the measures in Sweden, though they were only recommendations, did not differ much. Uh, and when, when we compare need for intensive care and mortality due to COVID-19, we can see that there were large differences in relation to country of birth in Sweden. And this is comparing um, relative incidence and the uh, purple is mortality. And we compare the uh, origin of birth from different countries. And when you compare people with COVID-19 being, being born in Sweden, there were about three times difference to the death compared to if you were born in the Middle East or in uh, Africa. And when it comes to the need of intensive care, there was a difference of five, there were five times more risk of need intensive care if you were born uh, in the Middle East or in Africa. So we did have large differences in the groups in Sweden, though we were set to take these into special consideration. And this, this goes the same for the vaccine coverage, where um, the, the straight lines are people born in Sweden and the dotted lines are people born outside of Sweden. And the, the green are the, el the eldest group in the population. And we see for any group that we compare that the, the coverage of vaccination is much higher for people being born in Sweden compared to people being born in other, other countries. Uh, and when we look at the outcome, just these are some parameters, um, we can see that although we had uh, taken into consideration uh, the outcomes of the measures, and they were less rigid compared to many other countries, uh, we did not completely come out that badly. Of course, we had, we had the relative high mort mortality and also morbidity in the early phases of the pandemic, but we were also hit very, very hard by the, the spread initially. Um, we had relatively low uh, access mortality if you look over a period of years, and the figures show the Swedish outcome compared to other European countries. Um, certain groups in society have been more affected. Uh, living condition and underlying health is decisive for the outcome. Um, the public health in Sweden is generally good, and we have been affected by the pandemic, but um, not that much. But those that have been affected are the most vulnerable groups in society. So the same trends as before the pandemic is, are still existing. And the outcomes needs, to, of course, to be followed. But uh, for me, it's no issue whether ethics should be considered, but they absolutely need to be considered. But we need to, to do more and we need to, to figure out how we can, in, in a better way, perform also when it comes to include the consequences of the measures on the entire population. Thank you very much, Karen. Um, and uh, thank you for this, this fascinating data. So for me, there are several things that come out of this. I'd love to come back to if we have time in discussion around to what extent you already had an ethical framework to an extent in the, in the mandate that you were given right from the start, for example, and what that data says about what the impact of all of that was. So just shortly, it, it was in place before the pandemic started. Yeah. So, so that was, uh, we, we were just following the legal framework that, that were Fascinating. I want to discuss this more, but we don't have time uh, right now, so we'll hopefully have time to come back to this. Uh, Dr. Portugal, um, may I turn to you? Because the Portuguese experience, very different context, different challenges perhaps. Let me hear about your take on that. Um, thank you very much. Um, thank you very much for inviting me uh, for this quite relevant uh, and challenging discussion, actually. 
Ethics is a major question mark in public health always on the decision making in different interventions, individual or population ones, as, as previously said. And we have a lot of experience with this on national, regional, local levels on, for instance, establishing priorities. Do cardiovascular diseases are more important than uh, rare diseases? Looking at the, the mortality versus looking at the human rights issues. And uh, we usually use tools to, to, to try to overcome those difficulties. And uh, tools like uh, measuring uh, the magnitude and the vulnerability, and of course, the social, environmental, and economical impact of the different uh, diseases or, or situations. Although the hand, Public health usually have public health authorities. They have, they are entitled with extra powers to defend the public health of the population, like myself. And that was quite important during the, this uh, COVID uh, pandemic, of course. But we learn a lot on this. Of course, during this pandemic, more actors have a rule for decision-making. You are being looking at the politicians as you've never been seen before in anything like uh, an epidemic's perspective. And uh, public health people were advising that. And uh, the question is that if public health people were just advising politicians, that might be quite simple. But citizens needed transparent information and accurate information for dealing and understanding the public health measures. And so sometimes the decision taking today will be very different from the decision we'll be taking tomorrow. And everybody remember this on vaccines, for instance, and age of vaccines and these kind of things. So it was a very, very difficult thing. So we needed to rely with the media. And it's a very important actor. We always have to think on the thinking also on the ethical perspective. So TV, newspapers, social networks, all kind of professionals and people suddenly become important actors on the decision-making process. First, let me share you that one day I realized that I was watching TV and the, the, the football league was suspended. And I see the people that usually are commenting on, this, on the Ronaldo and Mourinho and all those kind of things, and they were you know, giving their expertise on the pandemic and saying, you should do this and should do that. And all the guys were talking about Ronaldo all the time. And actually, usually, as you know, football, it's a very big business. You know, so usually they are in that. And um, so it, it's amazing. So finally, I also learned that the concept of time, it's very different. Politicians have one concept. They want to make decisions to be done on, to fulfill the expectations on the public uh, in, in a time, at a great time. The scientific time it needs to have the best evidence for better effectiveness and security for decision making. The public health time, is, we need to save lives. 
and control transmission of the disease. And the media time, the newspapers and TV and everybody else needs to have a very good agenda to sell that can fulfill the expectations of the public, the curiosity, and listen to everybody. So the first answer to the question on the ethical consideration that be best, must be taken into account as part of the preparedness is that, yes, we need to have to have and include some ethical codes of conduct for the preparedness of pandemias. But it's not just everyone has their own code. They have to be coordinated. If one fails, everybody fails. So it's not going to work. And that's a huge challenge. So I agree, we need the technicians, we need the social scientists, but we have also to, to have the communication people, the business people, and everybody on, on site. Otherwise, forget it. It's not going to work. Because it's being used for several other reasons that, and, and actually a lot of these people commenting on TV and so on, they're making a business out of that as well. Also, I'd like to conclude <laughs> with two, three, three, three reflections or four from the lessons learned from COVID. One thing which is the most important ethical issue we got on the pandemics. Our government, like others, the majority of the European governments, had the opportunity of really protect the most vulnerable ones, keeping their income and protecting their jobs. This probably was the most important issue on the ethical perspective. Secondly, what we learned, what the government did was to have and define very well the, the, the goals. First, avoid death. Secondly, protect the health services from cows. Everybody remember the images of Italy? There was a very trigger issue. And actually, the intensive care units, they were the ones really to get all the gains about this pandemic, not probably so much the public health, but that's another issue. And keep the economy going as much as we can do. So what uh, they establish several ways of surveillance. One is the epidemiological one. And every for every two weeks or so, there was a very big meeting open to the media with the three most important people on the government in Portugal, the president, the president of the parliament, and the prime minister every two weeks on an open session with the epidemiologists and all the technical people explaining the situation and giving insights openly on what should be done. And decisions would come after those sessions. So it was very, very transparent. Secondly, they established setup with social scientists a panel to better understand how the public were getting the attitudes towards the public health measures. And it was very relevant for measuring the fatigue and how should it be going? Can we push a little bit more or not so? And thirdly, there was a, a panel for the communication, seeing what the media is looking at. And finally, of course, the international screening. So what are our neighbors doing? Sometimes the evidence were, what are the Spanish doing? 
This was the evidence, really, to make a decision in the country. And I'm sure the Spanish should be doing the same with Genevieve in France and so on and so on. And, uh, but two other things to finish. Very brief. Last Friday, we got, um, uh, there was a public, published a legal act by the Constitutional Court stating that the resolution of the Council of Ministers that allowed the health authorities for isolating patients and quarantine is unconstitutional. Which means people like me and 300 other more health authorities in the country, probably we are going to have big problems with the courts when I go back home. This is a tremendous issue, the law. And that we have a good practice. For the last years, we established a training program on public health ethics for public health residents with on-job training, not all with problems like outbreaks usually, and what you can do and what you cannot do. This is being a very productive issue on training the future generation of public health people in Portugal. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for bringing us that perspective as, as Deputy Director General of Health of the Directorate General of Health in, in Portugal. You raised a wide variety of issues. I hope that the, the court cases are uh, only an ethical discussion and don't result in anything too much more serious, but let's, let's not get, get quite into that. Um, we're running a bit behind time, but we st I'd still very much like to, to turn um, to Professor Geneviève Chen, who is Director General of Santé Publique in, in France, the um, advisory, the National Health uh, Advisory Body in France. Um, Genevieve, thank you very much for joining us, even if uh, remotely. We've heard two very different experiences from Sweden um, and uh, from Portugal. Please bring us your perspective from France. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon. And uh, thank you to ECDC for invitation. Uh, of course, sorry for not being in uh, presence in uh, beautiful Gatstein. Um, I'm speaking um, on, on behalf of National Public Health uh, Agency, Santé Publique France, which uh, uh, mandate is to inform policymakers, but it is not our mandate to take policy decisions. So the public health we are doing and practicing is scientifically based, very concrete and operational in that uh, it should bring solutions to reduce the risks or improve population uh, health in cooperation, of course, cooperation with uh, uh, other actors. Um, where did uh, our advice uh, on ethical uh, issues came from, uh, come from uh, during that, that uh, pandemic? Well, from network of clinicians and <clears throat> practitioners, from learned societies, from the Academy of Medicine, from other national public health institutes through their global association, IANFI, uh, and, and also from published recommendations and guidelines, uh, including uh, WHO and um, ECDC that were really very precious. So my, my point here is uh, first to, to underline that the advice came uh, in, in this very exceptional um, uh, pandemic 
from different sources that were fragmented. Uh, it has been uh, underlined already, and, and I wanted to reinforce that fragmentation of, of advice. Uh, I have two, two concrete examples to share, to share with you. Uh, and uh, the, the first one is, is a specific example con concerning the reopening of schools um, to, to show how we incorporate moral values in the management of public health, which for a National Public Health Institute is, is very much integrated into the governmental uh, strategy, of course. Um, we are in April 2020. And we are actively contributing to the work uh, conducted by the government to prepare the exit of the lockdown, which will occur in May 2020. What we bring uh, here is a scientific review and we, in which we, we analyze globally all the available scientific evidence. So what we know, what we don't know, with a public health perspective. So looking into the benefits or harms of school closure, school reopening um, versus the prolongation of school closure uh, in terms of impact on virus transmission and more generally on other health dimensions, for example, mental health. So looking into health globally and also on the benefits of going to school for child development. So looking into public interest values as well uh, that go beyond health and do not harm health dimensions. Uh, in that review, consideration, for example, was also given to the most socially vulnerable children and the importance of school for their development and health on the short, mid and long term. One important aspect also was to point out to available solutions that are effective or feasible and help inform the balance between the potential harms or benefits of school reopening or closure, and especially the measures of prevention that can be implemented at school and consistently at home. So in this context, available recommendations from other countries or international authorities were also considered in detail as sharing of international experience is crucial in this context of uh, huge uncertainty. uncertainty sorry. Um, a second example is regarding the surveillance of uh, epidemiological indicators of COVID. Uh, now we are even early in March uh, 2020 and we start publishing indicators regularly. We make them uh, available to all citizens uh, in open data, uh, with the shortest possible delay, we choose more neutral color grading rather than the traffic light system to avoid the stigmatization of specific territories that can generate tensions. We make all calculation methods and data sources available and respond and rectify if needed. So that's the sort of conversation we had with a huge uh, public because the data were available openly and that was uh, our customer service to citizens so quite a huge amount of work uh, and we decipher uh, with the media. These principles uh, were those of uh, meeting in uh, principles, ethical principles of increasing autonomy with uh, by making decisions more understandable uh, justice, uh, ensuring information is 
widely available uh, and respect also principles of scientific integrity. That was part of um, uh, building and maintaining trust as already uh, uh, underlined, uh, which was uh, so important and especially when uh, the indicators were different in different uh, territories. Uh, so uh, just to summarize that uh, 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 from our point of view of the National Public Health uh, Institute, while we are not decision maker, uh, we have uh, essential public health missions to, 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 to accomplish, to support decision based on scientific evidence and also on collective expert uh, advice. Um, it, it was mentioned that uh, individual expert advice was so frequent during this pandemic, uh, we rely more on collective expert advice. And also the importance of prioritizing solutions that should aim to decrease uh, the tensions between uh, intervention and the respect of fundamental rights as much as possible. Saying all that um, and preparing this, uh, this meeting, I realized how much all this was not so explicit and uh, should, of course, uh, be uh, uh, and uh, should be taken on board in all our process much more uh, explicitly. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, over to you, Nick. Thank you very I'm much. Happy Genevieve. to respond to any question. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I, so one of the things that, that strikes me out of this is that when I listen to the three of you talk about your, your national experiences, that there are, for all that they were very different, but there are some very common themes about, these, about the kinds of tensions you were encountering, uh, and also maybe the, the, the lack of an explicit framework that already was there to guide you at the start of this, although perhaps Sweden is a slight exception in that. We might, we might hear more about that. Um, I wondered very briefly, because we're, we're slightly short of time, but and, Andrea and Andreas, I thought I might um, come back to you as, our, uh, as having set the scene. Now that you've, you've heard these reactions or these, these experiences from, from colleagues at the national level, just in, in 30 seconds, <laughs> just very briefly, if you were able to, um, is there anything that strikes you in particular about these experiences that you've heard? Andrea, I would perhaps um, come, come to you first. And is, uh, in terms of having the, the challenge that you recognized when you convened this session, is there anything that strikes you now hearing these experiences from our colleagues? Well, I think um, uh, it's, it's, it's clear. For me, it was clear from the outcome what, what we saw in, in terms of what measures countries put in place and how they put in place and how they were followed, that there were different situations in the countries. And um, uh, I mean, uh, you know, we, we have to conclude that um, uh, the national context is important for the kind of measures uh, that are put in place. Because uh, what um, um, Karin Wissel uh, uh, described probably would not work in other countries where this trust between uh, public health and the government um, and the population is not there. 
so, so I think that is something where we cannot say it's a, a one-size-fits-all. Very interesting. So even if the our language might be, we might share our discussion and share these principles that the nature of the, uh, the nature of the debate in different contexts might need to always reflect that context as well as the universality of some of these principles. We'll be coming to some of these universal principles in a few minutes when we hear about more about fundamental rights. Andreas, what, what, what strikes you from a, from a WHO perspective that, uh, um, from these different national experiences? Well, as a soccer fan, I do have to come back to the comments by uh, Dr. Portugal, uh, where he said that uh, uh, all of a sudden you had uh, soccer players actually speaking about the uh, pandemic. And I think uh, that really uh, you reminded me of the importance of uh, trust and the role that expertise plays. And I think what we have seen is uh, uh, basically both ways we have seen very good influence by influential you know non-experts but we have also seen a lot of uh, fake news youtubers becoming experts in uh, you know mass cues or anti-vaxxers and so forth and um, i think this also has been a new feature of this uh, pandemic uh, what we at who call the um, infodemic so really a flooding um, with uh, information, both uh, true and fake news. And this has become uh, uh, very difficult to handle for policymakers um, and uh, to, uh, in, in the face of this uh, infodemic, to maintain the trust of the population. Over. Thank you very much indeed. And I think indeed that was very clear. There are more comments that could be made about football commentators, especially when in some countries that I'm familiar with, when football commentators end up making more sense than some of the experts. But that's, that's, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. We should discuss that later. Um, may I now invite, let, let's turn to the word cloud um, and see what kind of perspectives we have uh, from what kind of reactions we have from the audience in terms of when we look at these different experiences, what kind of ethical principle has been the most neglected in the evidence around the COVID-19 pandemic? This is your opportunity now. When you think about the challenges that our national decision makers and advisors have faced, what kind of things have, what have we missed through not having the kind of ethical infrastructure that Andreas described through having this kind of fragmentation and, and lack of an existing vocabulary that Andrea introduced in establishing this session. Agency by, by individuals, I guess, for us all to um, be able to exercise our own agency, proportionality. Protecting the most vulnerable. It's, yeah, it's hard to do it as a single word, that concept, but I mean, it's, it's, that's, that's, that's very clear. And many of these, so for example, benef um, beneficence, and this is the obverse of, of, a, of a classic ethical principle in terms of um, maleficence, doing no harm. Um, and so we see an echo of some of the other eth um, ethical principles that we use in medicine also being reflected here, but, but going beyond these, because a lot of these ethical principles that we're talking about in public health ethics, I think 
don't link directly, they're not direct parallels to medical ethics. There are some very specific and characteristic issues here which aren't quite the same things as we would see in more narrow clinical or medical ethical discussions. And what that highlights, I think, is the importance of considering an explicitly public health ethics and that we need slightly different terms for that. I'm going to invite I'm sure that the experts who are, who are sat here, I, I see you know, noting some of these particular points, solidarity, equity, agency, and something that will be very familiar to all three of you, children's rights coming across very clearly. Brian, if I can come to you. So you've, I think we've been, well, I'm, I'm sure we've been having questions from the audience. Are there any themes that come across from that that you think we should be considering in the, in the final half an hour of this session as we continue the discussion? Hello. Yes. Thanks, Nick. Um, yeah. So I think I, I've been monitoring the, the Twitterverse and, and you know our, our Slido here, uh, and it seems like you know people are really reflecting on this need for striking a balance between personal freedoms and, and you know population health protection. Um, and uh -huh. a lot of the questions that we received were around control and, and fear around you know that control potentially being exploited by certain you know members uh, and you know to what extent you know this discourse needs to be communicated to the public and, and how would that influence uh, individual decisions and, and rights um, a lot around personal freedoms and, and you know so, something around data came up and, and whether data should be a, a public good um, during health emergencies um, and then also implications on on certain population groups i mean we've we've got children up here but also the elderly um, mental health of, of the younger uh, generations uh, and how that might be uh, negatively impacted thank you very much and indeed right from the start um uh, from from your presentation karen I, you know this question of different groups within society and the differential impacts on different groups has come across very clearly i think and um, I, when we come back I, I might ask you to see if there's time to reflect on that but we still have two more speakers who i want uh, who i want to bring in and i'm, I'm going to turn first to a, an online um colleague who's uh, a, the last one is not able to benefit from the uh, from the joys of gash of participating directly in gashstein um dr ludovica banfi from uh, the eu Agency for Fundamental Rights, an expert on human rights and health issues. Because, of course, Dr. Banfi, fundamental rights are, those are part of our vocabulary, and they are, in a sense, our starting point for how we think about some of these ethical issues. And so I'm very interested to hear your perspective about um, how do we ensure that we, we take account of these broader issues as we consider future pandemics. Over to you. Many thanks. Many thanks also to the colleagues of ECDC for this invitation and Dr. Raman. So, uh, yes, um, I represent the Fundamental Rights Agency, which um, is an agency like ECDC of the EU landscape and um, mainly mandated to collect uh, evidence data on fundamental rights. And uh, we have been looking into the fundamental rights implication of the pandemic, collecting data from uh, the member states on, on what they saw as, as main fundamental rights implication. And maybe just to give a bit of a sense of, of the wideness of the issues and, and the fundamental rights affected, I'll, I'll give a few examples. First of all, um, this what it appeared to be the most widespread, uh, widespread broader restriction <clears throat> on daily life experienced um, in peacetime modern Europe affecting um, everyone living in the EU 
but in different ways. And it, it really impacted on a number of fundamental rights. Um, it, this pandemic, both the pandemic um, had a, imposed a, an unprecedented challenge um, to, to the way of life uh, in the EU, but also the measures taken to address it. And um, so a few examples um, that came from the member states include um, in the fact that many member states uh, introduced or prolonged uh, states of emergency or equivalent to the, respond to the crisis. Um, and of course, state of emergency allows certain rights to be limited, first and foremost, uh, the, the freedom of movement, uh, but also the freedom of assembly and association and also impact the, the freedom, so the, the right to private and family life. Um, of course, courts in several member states assessed whether these measures were legal or not and their impact, impact on fundamental rights and also very important the role um, from a fundamental rights perspective of national human rights bodies and also the civil society which also monitored and, and uh, raised concerns about, about the fundamental rights linked to state of emergency also in their enforcement. Um, also, um, very important uh, is the, the, the physical distancing measures that were introduced, stay-at-home requirements, suspension of mass gatherings and physical distance while in public, uh, stay-at-home um, um, measures. And also these measures uh, might affect many fundamental rights. Um, and also in this case, there are reports. There were reports also of enforcement, of strong enforcement, or also high sanctions, or strong enforcement by police in some member states. And um, another group that uh, another aspect that uh, was very important is the right to education. The fact that many um, education facilities across the EU remained closed, and the fact of children and their, uh, passing to distance learning. Um, however, as mentioned before by same speakers, the importance of looking at particular vulnerable groups and how these measures affect them. Uh, certain children um, may face particular challenges in accessing and participating in distance learning, um, including those uh, from uh, more disadvantaged social backgrounds, but also migrants and uh, those with a minority ethnic background. And um, also, Another group uh, that that was highly highly affected um, is um, um, persons um, in detention, um, because um, of course they uh, living in overcrowded uh, situations often and uh, could experience higher degree of the disease and the impossibility actually. To, to follow the, the, the distancing and the other measures put in place. So this is just to give a, to give a sense of the yeah. number of fundamental rights. And last but not least, I would say privacy and data protection. Uh, it can seem less relevant, but it's in this context of this pandemic, uh, member states explored um, how technology can support efforts to, to, to monitor and to track the spread of COVID. Uh, for instance, using uh, contact tracing apps and um, the processing of this personal data raise a number of fundamental rights concern 
relating to da uh, privacy and data protection. For example, many member states um, at the beginning at least did not have legislation in place to determine the, the legal basis for processing personal data and um, introducing safeguards um, in, these, uh, in these apps. Um, so this is yeah a broad number of issues that that uh, that were raised, and um, however the uh, the important is that um, and a whole, uh, very important is that these rec uh, restrictions on rights, um, which are taken to to preserve the light the right to life, and the right to health, uh, they have to be somehow legal. Um, necessary, as uh, already mentioned, and proportionate. And it's also crucial that they are ended when they are no longer needed, as, for example, something which was addressed in the context of the um, uh, state of emergency measures by, by national courts mm. uh, in some member states. Um, so I will, I will stop here for, for now to... Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for, um, for that contribution. I mean, that illustrates the sheer range of rights that were, were involved in these issues, because that was, I mean, that was quite a list uh, of, of different topics that were, that were raised. And if we have time, I would love to come back and, and discuss further how those then are balanced with these kinds of ethical principles that, uh, that we've been raising and discussing, which were identified by participants here in, the, um, uh, in, in terms of some of the, the items which got uh, identified through the word cloud. Um, before we do that, though, we've, we've talked a lot about the importance of engaging with, with citizens. Um, Rui, you talked to, uh, about you know, the, the way that you were trying to get the feeling of what was, what was really happening within society. I think all th across all the different national experiences about the, uh, the ways in which you were trying to understand and engage with uh, members of the public. Um, Kaisa Eamon, and your perspective is therefore particularly valuable as the Director of Policy for the European uh, Patient Forum. This is, obviously this was a, in a sense we were all potential patients during this period of time and, and we were all faced with this sense of potentially being at, at risk. How did, do you see these issues of balancing these ethical challenges um, in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic? Thank you, Nick, and thank you, first of all, for having invited me to be in this session. It's my pleasure, and it's an incredibly important topic, and you've put such a simple question to me, Nick, that <laughs> I, I, should just, I feel like I should just have an answer for you, but I don't. Clearly, I mean, what we've learned and what we've seen also from, from my particular vantage point, obviously I represent a community of people who have been particularly vulnerable, mm. But we also saw in, in a wider perspective uh, that, you know, we have had these conflicting rights and conflicting priorities, and there is no easy solution to that. But I think the, the issue of community engagement, civil society engagement and ethics has to be linked, and I'll, I'll come back to that point. Uh -huh. But, I mean, there... The people who uh, are most vulnerable and marginalized in society were obviously affected more 
both by the medical or health effects of the pandemic, so that the threat of infection, dying, hospitalization, but also the measures taken to, to try and, and restrict the health impacts. So in terms of losing employment, losing impact, uh, income, for example. So there, there are things that have to be considered. Um, and I would also say that it was interesting that in the word cloud, the words protection of the vulnerable came up, but also solidarity and agency. I picked those up because it seems that we had a lack of solidarity in society, and it became particularly more evident as the situation progressed and people became fatigued with the pandemic. Mm. And we saw, for example, the kind of the rhetoric that was clearly ageist and ableist. If if COVID-19 only kills old people, or only those who already have multiple diseases, maybe we should just let it happen, you know, without restricting everybody else's lives too much. Um, but then also, the lack of agency. I think we felt that from some, some groups, I'm, I'm going to refer to one of, of EPF's members representing people with dementia, who are obviously a, a people who um, are usually included in the vulnerable and for whom specific measures would be taken to protect them. But we didn't see that, that, that there was agency, so involvement in shaping the measures and discussing what was proportionate and what was ethical from their perspective. Because, for example, um, let's just take two, two examples. Restriction of visitors in old people's homes obviously was done for protecting both staff and residents. But then we had situations where people were basically locked in their homes and could not see their loved ones. And for a person with dementia, that you know, you don't understand why and what is happening. It, it was very upsetting in mm. many cases. And the same with hospitals, where obviously for rational reasons, uh, visitors were restricted. And then you had situations where people were dying alone. And I think that those kind of negative impacts would need to be considered when shaping and designing measures and when communicating them. So I come to the link between engagement because I think that there has been a lack of ethical debate, at least in public. I'm sure that nationally there was, you know, public health bodies and ministries did have ethical discussions, guidance and so on, but this has not fed into the public discussion. And I think community engagement was also a bit left in the sidelines. Certainly patient engagement, if we talk specifically about healthcare, we found that a lot of engagement activities were stopped in an emergency. Clearly they, were, they are not embedded in the system as much as we'd like them to be, and they're still considered an optional extra. I think we can't afford that when preparing for the next pandemics. There needs to be a link between preparedness plans, development, ethical discussions, and community engagement. There needs to be agency, as well as protection and solidarity. So that would be my, maybe my biggest point, actually. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. <clears throat> and you're taking us right into the, um, the sort of the, the the theme, I think, maybe for our last um, 15, 20 minutes, which is well, what can we do now? Like now we are 
um, what was that phrase? We, 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 um, I'm, I'm Andreas, I'm going to borrow a couple of quotes from your, your earlier introduction. Um, well, you know, there was that, there's that old saying that peace is uh, merely the interval between wars. And you know, may, maybe what we're in now is just the, uh, the interval between pandemics. But what can we do during this period? What would, if I look at the, um, and maybe I, I would ask the different national representatives um, to reflect on this. Um, and I'll come to you first, Genevieve, sorry, uh, only slight advance warning. What would give, what would put you now in a more comfortable position? What could we be doing now that would mean that you felt more comfortable in facing these ethical challenges going into, if that should happen again, but we fear it probably will at some point, a future pandemic or a future health crisis? Um. Well, it's, it's interesting to see the different angles of the discussion, but we, we come back um, uh, to uh, complex situations. It's, uh, it's always the, the, the way it's, it's qualified and because also we, we have huge uh, uncertainty, but we need the more collective uh, expertise and collective uh, uh, discussion and conversation. So. What would be needed is to, to uh, I would say, is uh, to have this um, ethical analysis uh, um, more uh, explicit. And so uh, I think that that was already uh, said. I very much uh, agree with the, the need for a public health framework uh, to, to end the deliberation uh, by making the relevant values uh, very explicit when all the process of discussion, so incorporating also science, but we need the uh, relevant values made uh, very explicit, and these values also are, uh, should they, they then be used to, to guide or, or frame uh, decision-making. Mm. Um, just just to, to add to this input, uh, and based on this principle, uh, at Santé Publique France, we, we have engaged uh, with the National Ethical Committee uh, in embedding uh, public health ethics in our uh, scientific and public health missions because we, we miss that. Uh, and through especially the development of a series of uh, events uh, and seminars on public health ethics and uh, uh, through also the development of uh, tools for public health ethics uh, analysis. Uh, the, and, and, and we need also to engage uh, uh, dialogue with uh, Mm -hmm. all uh, relevant stakeholders we, we have at the national uh, level to, to be pre better prepared. We can expect some peace uh, periods, but I don't uh, expect much uh, in a National Public Health Institute to, to experience crisis because they are uh, piling at the moment. So, so we, we need to engage anyway in, in that uh, in uh, thoughts uh, and reflection to, to, to have such a public health framework, I think. Very good, thank you. So it sounds as though the, this will be the st uh, only the start of a discussion. And Andrea, I know that I know that was your intention, as you as you outlined in the beginning. Um, Rui, if I if I come to you, what 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 would help now? So you you were talking about your engagement with citizens, for example, which Kaiser um, uh, was alluding to as well. What would make you in a stronger position for for future challenges? <clears throat> yeah, it's a very good question. There are two, two things here. If we talk in a European level 
or a national one. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think we need both. We, I, I also need that other countries have um, surveillance systems about what their home uh, uh, population think and deal with these issues. Because we know that the, the borders are very much open and everybody's looking to the other side. Mm. So this is very, very, very important, more than we even think about that. I remember the Swedish issue and a, a lot of pressure on the economical side. They do this and that, and we actually yesterday was discussing it today. They said, but look at this, we the southerners, we can have so physical distance. That's impossible. Everybody will be in the, in the same pile of people, just you know, kissing each other and so on. So forget it. We are not like the Swedish. So, um, but to 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 look at this, uh, it would be really nice to know, and it would be very very good if we have a kind of a reports, a written statements on what happened in each one of the country concerning the engagement of the population. In my own country, what we learn is that it is a very helpful thing. We have people now that they know how to deal with these issues. Actually, our, we had two panels, actually, mm -hmm. one from my own institution and another one from the National School of Public Health who was um, the leader, and I'm sorry to say that, she was a 49 years old professor that died last, last week, and a, a tremendous loss for, for all of us. She was the one leading, so there's our greetings uh, to, to her work. And, um, and it was very helpful. So, uh, question is, so we know how to do this, and uh, we now we are reviewing the preparedness plan. We have one on the flu. 93, from the 93, 1993, we used that plan actually for, for at the very beginning on this COVID pandemia, and of course things changed so much. And um, I think that this is, this is it. On the ethical perspective, it's a little bit more complex. We are looking, yes, the most vulnerable thing, uh, people, uh, it's a tremendous problem, I would say, in all the countries, for, for sure. The question is that the first principle on the ethical, clinical ethical, is do not harm. This is one. And so we probably in public health, we were okay with that. On the health perspective, but on the economical perspective, maybe we did a lot of harm on the social perspective. So this is a more comprehensive ethics than we are thinking, really. We have this prepared for outbreaks. We are not have this prepared for a pandemia. It's more comprehensive and we have to to have these people to be abroad and uh, on board I mean and discuss it thank you but the, I, I can't help that there's a, 
there's a tension there, isn't there, between on the one hand when you say, well, we know how to do this, but on the other hand you say, well, this is more complex than we're used to. So the, there is a, a, you know, knowing what doing no harm means when we get to a, 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 yeah. a public health, that and is a difficult thing. That's the first line. Yeah, yeah. When you're going to do in a discussion like this, this is going an ethicist, that's what's going to ask first. Yeah. And it will be kind of, well. <laughs> it will, yes, thank you. And then if I, if, I, if I come to you, so I think as, as I mentioned before, uh, Karen, it, it, it almost sounded as though you had all of this sorted in Sweden. Um. Not quite. <laughs> what, what we did have was that we had a legislation that pointed that we had to take into consideration both the children particularly and also that the measures had to be proportional and they could only be put forward and decided after we had had interactions with the stakeholders that were to be affected. But that doesn't make it easy. I mean, Kaisa was just pointing out how extremely difficult it was with the elderly. We had a recommendation that um, citizens above the uh, 70 years of age should, should self-isolate themselves, which they did, which had um, tremendous effects on mental well-being. And also we had a strong binding legislation regarding visiting elderly homes mm -hmm. that we discussed heavily on how, how should we pursue. Because I think we need to be open that um, there is a cost when we have a pandemic. Mm. I think uh, in society today, we have this um, imagination that we have come so far in healthcare and in welfare that we can manage without a cost. But um, there will be a cost. Either it will be a cost due to a little bit higher amount of transmission or there will be a cost due to the measures that we impose, like for the elderly for one. So we need to be open with that now and that is what makes the ethical discussion so hard because we do not want to, to put various groups against each other. Mm. So we really need to use this window now that we have, we're still in a pandemic, we're not through it yet, but we have been through periods of the pandemic that has mm. been really, really hard on society and on individuals. And we need to use the window now to discuss the ethical considerations because there is a cost. Of course, we need to have better preparedness plans. We need to have stockpiles of uh, personal protective equipment. We need to have diagnostic tests, etc., etc. Those things are costly, um, but the difficult issue is really the ethical issue because uh, you cannot go through a pandemic without having someone suffering from it and we need to, to, to balance and that's one of the basis why we in Sweden had less stringent rules because we as an authority cannot say to someone at the age of 75 or someone with dementia, no you're not allowed to you're not allowed to see your uh, close relatives or the close relatives to say that. I mean, there has to be a personal consideration regarding what risks am I willing to take? And then, of course, for society, we have to have some clear rules. But those needs to be uh, taken uh, through the democratic uh, parliaments in the countries. What are the rules that we are going to, um, to look into? What are the ethical considerations that we shall take? So, so this is one of the points that I wanted to maybe, uh, th there are two more points that I wanted to reflect on and I, and um, with absolute apologies to uh, the colleagues from the European and international level, I thought I, 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 would, I would come to you to see if you wanted to reflect on them. And one of them is about the extent to which we, we had a whole discussion, I think, in many places about evidence and about following the evidence. 
But that's intention, Karen, with the point that you're just making about decision-making, democracy and participation and, and community engagement, Kaiser. Because in a sense, one way of thinking about evidence is, that is it becomes quite almost totalitarian. It becomes almost saying, well, this is what the evidence says, and that's the end of the discussion. Whereas a sense from what all of you are saying is that actually it's the start of it. There's a different type of discussion within which that evidence needs to situate. And that then creates challenges, probably, for, for the international organizations. And I also can't ignore the point that, that Andreas, you raised in your opening remark about, um, you know, as, as you said, the UN Secretary General said, that uh, we, are, we, we passed the science test, but we're getting an F in ethics. Our discussion about ethics has been focused on ethics within our countries. But there is still a very present and real question about ethics between the different parts of the world. And we, we heard at an event earlier on in, in the Gastein Health, um, Health Forum about some fundamental ethical tensions between the amount of resource that there is going into some of these measures, and in particular vaccines and diagnostics and therapeutics within Europe as opposed to in Africa, for example, and in poorer parts of the world. I don't know if... if you, I, I'm going to leave, allow um, colleagues online, if I, I come again to you, perhaps in reverse order. So uh, if I, um, Ludovica, if I might invite you to reflect on um, whichever of those points you, you, you would like to pick up on, either the sort of the point about the tension between evidence and, and ethical engagement in, uh, or the, the issue about the balance of ethics beyond the EU's borders as well. Ah, here no, um, it, uh, no, thanks for that. I think it's a, it's a very critical point. Um, I think one aspect that I've seen reflected in the discussion and that I'm thinking now <laughs> is the fact that so a number of uh, representatives from at the national level mentioned how the um, ethical framework was not embedded into the response. This is not something we specifically looked into. But th something it is apparent from me from the fundamental rights perspective is that also fundamental rights perspective and framework is not embedded in the, re in the, re in the response. Mm. So, um, of course, the evidence is, is absolutely key, but I'm wondering whether there could be um, as a for the future uh, uh, possibility to 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 include an ethical framework and also somehow more strongly a, a human right a fundamental right framework that looks um, into all aspects all fundamental rights aspects and impact into the response that is 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 provided to the to the pandemic and also with which uh, puts together in the consultation process in the, among the stakeholders, also other um, constituency like um, I'm thinking national human rights institutes, um, data protection authorities, which are more marginal somehow. They're not the usual suspects, uh, but f um, for, 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 for health, but um, are actually, uh, were quite relevant um, in this case, um, when when looking into into response and the impact that the risk, the response had on on different groups, including especially uh, vulnerable groups. Mm. So I don't know if it's a, <laughs> this could be a, a suggestion for 
um, for for so for future for future for future steps of including not only ethical aspects but also fundamental rights, rights aspects, which are um, somehow be include partly the ethical aspects, mm. but also other, I think. Uh, other aspects which are not included in in the ethical ones and which are binding by the way for 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 many member states thank you and it's it's interesting isn't it because we um, we tend to think of these processes as being quite in, in a sense almost quite legislative and and I, I fear that you, you've described a way in which you know the courts are maybe intervening in these processes now and Maybe there's a challenge here to all of us, which is how can we have this kind of discussion in a way that doesn't end up in a series, a series of court cases, for, because then that maybe doesn't promote the most open and reflective types of decision-making, and instead you end up with slightly defensive decision-making with sort of one eye on, on, on whether or not particular actors in the health field are going to uh, are at risk of litigation. But so, uh, yeah, we, so we enlarge this discussion about ethics to also include a discussion about um, uh, fundamental rights, and that also enlarges the field of the actors who we, we want to see uh, bringing in there. Andreas, if I can turn to, to you in the, uh, as we come to, towards the end of the session. Um, the WHO, of course, has, has taken a leading role in talking about the need for uh, equity and, uh, and fairness in the approach to distribution of resources, for example. How, I mean, how can we approach, how can we, is, is this ethical perspective useful in helping us to understand and come to decisions about the balance and the questions of justice and, uh, and fairness also at a global level and between states and regions, do you think? Yeah, thanks for that uh, question, Nick. Um, I think it was mentioned before that uh, equity and solidarity um, is uh, necessary at all levels. So we have uh, had uh, problems at the national levels in terms of uh, neglecting vulnerable populations. It was mentioned uh, patients with dementia and uh, also the elderly. But uh, of course, at the international level, they have been, uh, as mentioned previously, huge uh, uh, inequities in uh, distribution of resources, notably the vaccines, but also other um, you know, key uh, resources. And uh, this is why the WHO member states have started a negotiation of an international pandemic treaty, which uh, will be on, is ongoing now, but will still take a, a year or two. And I think the hope is really that this treaty will um, incorporate um, a way, an approach, how in future pandemics we can uh, ensure a more equitable distribution of uh, these resources in going forward. Back thank to you. Your short of time. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for um, keeping an eye on the clock as well. Um, and that only strengthens the need for having some kind of shared language and shared capacity to have these discussions about, about public health ethics, I think. Um, Andrea, uh, uh, perhaps a final remark from you. I think the discussion has only confirmed the need and the usefulness of discussing public health ethics more generally. Are there any final conclusions that you would take away from the discussion that we've had this afternoon? Uh, 
Yeah, thank you so much um, uh, for for all of your your contributions. I think it was a good start, and I just wanted to say that we had at the beginning when we conceptualized the session thought about uh, the the global dimension, and we deliberately um, uh, limited it. To, to the situation uh, in the EU, because we thought there's so much still to do uh, before we look globally. That doesn't mean that this aspect isn't important. Now, um, uh, for me, there are several things that we need to pursue further. It, it had became, has become very clear to me that um, this um, impact assessment of our public health measures has to become more holistic. Yeah. Uh, not only the, the health impacts, but also the, the, the ramifications in the wider society. And that, I think, was, was uh, probably not done always as thoroughly as it should have been. Um, I also wanted to say that uh, the uh, infectious disease legal acts uh, for, you know, establishing the surveillance and, and, and so forth in the countries, they are done with the explicit suspension of certain um, fundamental rights in the case of such an uh, infectious disease. Um, with the, the idea in mind that there is the public uh, health that has to be protected. And that re um, re uh, justifies uh, restrictions at the individual level, proportionate. Um, and I think that was the starting point that all of us in public health had when we came, in, came into the pandemic. And that, I think, mm -hmm. is something that we need to develop further. Um, we were looking to get a public health ethicist into um, uh, uh, another one, uh, except for, for, for Andreas here. And uh, it was almost, it was impossible. Uh, so I think the expertise is quite rare. And I, I, I believe we have, have to do also some training. I was intrigued by Ruiz um, uh, mentioning that they have this aspect in their training, in their on-the-job training. And I think that is a very good example mm. that should be taken up, not only on the job training, but also in the university, so that every uh, doctor that leaves the university really um, uh, knows how to take this into account. Um, yeah, that's sort of just some of the, of the takeaways that I, I have picked up and that we, we will see how we can uh, pursue them further. I would really like to thank all the all the uh, colleagues uh, sharing the experience here, and also Nick uh, to you for the moderation. Thank you. Thank you, Andrea. Um, and I will invite everyone here to join and express thanks. But before you do that, I'm just going to do a time. But outside is coffee, but also a book launch. Um, from the European Observatory on everything you always wanted to know about EU policies but were afraid to ask. Third edition. I'm completely biased because I'm one of the co-authors, but you might like it anyway. Um, uh, but having said that, I would now like to thank, uh, I invite you all to join me in thanking everyone who's contributed to this session uh, and all of you both in the room and online for taking part. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>